I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Company of Wolves. A young girl feels her soul awakened to the call of emotions she cannot name. This is the twilight world where half-forgotten memories of childhood lead into a fantastic realm. Was it a wolf or a man you killed? When I killed it, it was a wolf. It turned into a man. Here, dreams become reality and our darkest fantasies come true. Worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside and when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. They say the Prince of Darkness is a gentleman. Gentlemen always keep their promises. What have you done with my granddaughter? Nothing she didn't want. <laughs> the Company of Wolves, where fairy tales end and nightmares begin. This is an obscure, dreamlike fable, perfect for a dark night with a hot drink. Directed in 1984 by Neil Jordan, this was only his second film. It would be followed by, in no particular order, Interview with the Vampire, Mona Lisa, Michael Collins, In Dreams, The Butcher Boy, and unintentionally, genuinely harmful trans panic instigator, The Crying Game. It is adapted from the short story of the same name by Angela Carter in her 1979 anthology, The Bloody Chamber and Other Stories. The film it most resembles is a much darker, more gruesome, more sexually charged labyrinth, swapping David Bowie for a bunch of men of wildly varying sexiness. The framing device, similar to Jim Henson's labyrinth, is a slumbering tween girl in her family's country mansion. They said it was a house, that's a mansion, it's huge in 1980s England. She rarely wakes within this external bookending, but has retired to bed for the afternoon and indeed evening with tummy cramps, I think that's kind of mentioned at the beginning, yeah. and uh, dreams a dozen different wolf-related episodes. There is an overarching loose plot about a Regency-era peasant girl named Rosaline, who's the analogue for the Dreaming Girl, played by the same actress. But within that overarching story, there are other tales told to Rosaline by her grandmother, played by the recently departed Angela Lansbury. And we had absolutely planned to cover this movie for this Halloween, and it's been on our list for years. But the real-world sadness tinges this movie with additional melancholy and it makes it all the better. It's pretty obscure, you can find it in a lot of places. It's currently available on Britbox, Peacock, Fubu, Roku, Tubi, Canopy, Fandor, Pluto, Plex, Freevee, Dylan, Dermot, Wesley, Rumor, and in its entirety on YouTube in 1080p. Now, I described it in my uh, original notes as uh, like a series of concentric circles in terms of storytelling, like there's stories within stories, but then they just sort of radiate outwards or inwards. And it was described by Neil Jordan in his very boring commentary. As it's kind of like a... Was it like a, a Chinese puzzle box? Who's got the most boring voice? What? Of the lot of us, who's got the most boring voice? 
Gonna be me, Ted. <laughs> listen, I have an awful dreary, monotonous voice. Going like yes, 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 yes. Listen, Ted. Were you asking for a dramatic, exciting voice? No, he said boring. He wanted a boring voice. In that case, you must excuse me for my impetuous interruption. They have a guy there to prompt him and keep him awake. There must have been some fun on set there, Neil. Ah, uh, no, uh, it, it went fairly well. Oh, uh, handling the wolves, that must have been quite difficult. Oh, no, they were quite well trained. It's that kind of commentary. <laughs> the actual film if you're someone like us, is fucking fascinating to watch. It looks... But people have compared it to Hammer Horror in terms of creaky-ass sets. I actually think it looks more like Jim Henson's The Storyteller, and that was presided over by Anthony Mingala, who was gone too soon from the world of directors. The budget was apparently £410,000, or $2.3 million, and I'm like, that is some exchange rate. <laughs> Which is it? Obviously, the exchange rate right about now is $2.3 million equals £2.3 million because we've it's completely fucked million. the pound. Yes. That's what constantly demanding special treatment whilst only electing the incompetent and corrupt does to a nation. And from the look of these charming, gaunt and stagey little sets, they clearly stretched every 1984 British pound. However, if it made £4.3 million, on only £410,000, that's good. That's really good. And they had to, with their creaky set design, make what appeared to be a forest out of 12 trees. Yes. I, I have visions of, of uh, set hands taking trees from the front of the path and quickly yeah, running them behind. Running them, so I'm moving the <laughs> camera, get like the tree in the way. Trees than you or, I mean, like, just cut out the middleman, dress people as trees. Get Barnum Wood to move stage right. Films that you might have seen that have a similar kind of aesthetic where you have to build a forest rather than uh, film in a forest. Uh, in The Lord of the Rings, there were a bunch of different forests, but Fangorn is the one this most resembles in that they had to control everything and have Ents in there. So it's indoors and they took existing trees and bark and moved them around. Um, you've got, I think, the, the forest scenes in The Neverending Story and uh, some of the forest scenes in Legend. It's difficult to tell. Uh, from the sounds of it, I was uh, away from the room at this point, but Neil Jordan was uh, droning on about how much he's bitter that he didn't get the kind of projects that George Lucas and Ridley Scott got offered. He, well, the way he was framing it was that the young up-and-coming directors at the time, including himself, who were sort of limited to working with Channel 4-level budgets, mm. were rather resentful of people like George Lucas and Ridley Scott who got to play with studio level yeah. equipment and sets and props and things of that nature. How come he gets a studio all I get is 12 trees? This you didn't say that. <laughs> I, I can't understand how someone so boring sounding could be so unenthusiastic about such a fun movie. Then again, have you ever heard a Tim Burton commentary? I swear, for half of Beetlejuice, that son of a bitch was sleeping. This whole thing is sparky and it, it's got a, a, a nasty streak running through it, but at the same time, it's got kind of a very curious streak running it, through it. It does. I mean, I, I can't help wondering if at some point someone said to him, Neil, she's 14, this is really dodgy. Yeah. And, and that's made him a little nervous about going into some of the more in-depth thematic elements of the film. Maybe so, maybe so. Right, so she's 14, but it's, a lot of it is symbolic. And if you interpret it as a woman's story, mm. and it's being channeled through the directing uh, lens of a man, then it's kind of, he's facilitating 
Angela's uh, take on Absolutely. femininity. I think the fact that the, it's based on Angela Carter's book, she helped write the script, uh, the the screenplay and the story. Well, technically, it's with. it's based so. on she did a radio play extended version of the Company of Wolves bit yeah. of the short story. But even she said this is not a movie. You've got to make it bigger and you've got to pad it out. And the uh, the, the way it works of having the extra stories lay you know layered within the stories mm-hmm. did bring it out to 95 minutes yeah. and it, I mean, it feels the, like a film it doesn't feel just like a, a quick anthology of interest absolutely I mean the, the original intention was to have the central character older than she is mm. the actress herself was was I think it says she was 13 when she auditioned so she would have been about 14 when they filmed wow. it she looks a lot older. Yes, she does. And the context she's placed in varies wildly between, well, she seems about 10 based mm. on her behaviour and, well, she seems about 22 based on how other people are handling her. Yeah. But similar things could be said of Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth. Yeah. It, this was, and This is not me saying that that's absolutely fine and if they were to replicate that now, it would be okay. Oh, no, it would be creepy as fuck. But it was, it was not an uncommon... Tone to be struck hmm. in the mid eighties. Yeah, if this was based on a man's script, for example, hmm. I'd, I'd be like, it, it would come off as more creepy already because yeah. there, there there wouldn't be those just like checks and balances. I'm always grateful for the fact that everything I write gets handed to ladies who can look over it and and go, uh, maybe change this. I, you, I haven't has, been handed I many just notes about to actually. Say, has anybody? Any of us ever come back to you and gone, oh heavens no? No, no, not oh heavens no, but often in working with the actors playing the characters, we will come up with a more authentic response together. This is why I love working on New Century. The folks who get so involved because they care. Sure as hell isn't for the money. Whenever we've worked with stuff, it's I've I've never really sort of I can't remember seeing anything where I've thought you you really can't portray that this mm. way. It's more been let's adjust it to make it more complex and more engaging mm. and more interesting. He whisked off her shoes and panties in one movement, wild like an enraged shark. His bulky totem beating a seductive rhythm. Mary's body felt like it was burning, even though the room was properly air-conditioned. They tried all the positions, on top, doggy and normal. Exhausted, they collapsed onto the recently extended sofa bed. Then a hell beast ate them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so the, the first stave, uh, well, for a start... Um, we get introduced to this girl's sister in the real world, but her dad is David uh, Warner. Warner, who, uh, were, who uh, he it famously in The Omen, which we saw again recently, he eats shit when a giant pane of glass just beheads him. Mm. He's been a solid staple in all of his cinematic appearances since then. Like, you know, he, he brings uh, dignity to the uh, Billy Zane's man in Titanic, for example, mm. the drama teacher in Scream 2, Dr. Necessiter, the mad scientist in The Man With Two Brains, he plays it completely straight, puts a human brain in the body of a gorilla, and somehow convinces us that he's not the mayor of Crazy Town. As you know, my research has advanced to a point where I can put her mind into the body of a gorilla. I couldn't fuck a gorilla. As I know. But there is one other alternative. In my recovery room are two subjects who do nothing but this. But I think I've solved the problem. What kind of life would that be? This is my wife. Oh, I know her. I hate that. Luckily, they do find a solution. Oh, 
want green drop drink. And in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, when Shredder uh, like forces him to, to make a new, new mutagen, he's like, oh, I appear to have been kidnapped by a clown. He also, sadly, uh, uh, departed uh, fairly recently. But he's her father in the external real world, driving a Volvo, and uh, you know, her mother and sister are also there. And there's this gorgeous Alsatian... I want to say Alsatian, but it's like a... It's a Bulgarian Shepherd. The the dogs that they used for the film were largely Bulga- uh, Belgian Shepherd. Belgian dogs. Shepherd, that's the yeah. One. And so I suspect that this one was probably similar. But in the, the like their natural colouring, they did paint some of them. Like yeah, they coloured their fur to make them look more like wolves. But you can't sneak an Alsatian by they, me. They look very similar to German Shepherds. Mm. Yeah, they, they've got longer fur. But yeah. So this horrible venomous sister goes upstairs and sort of like sl- hammers on the door of her sleeping sister. It's like you're in there having menstrual cramps. They want you downstairs. You have to come out sometime. You can't sulk in there forever. Open the door. You've been at my lipstick too, haven't you? Pest. What makes you so different anyway? Bakhti, coming out, pest. It's not because I want you either, it's because mummy wants you. In context, even if she wasn't just about to start menstruating, Rosaline could be quite forgiven for saying to her sister, doesn't say it but basically it's like could you figure out whether and she's called Alice in the dream yeah um, although again we don't know what their their names are in in the real Mm. quote unquote real world Um, could you work out whether she was supposed to be older than Rosaline or younger she's supposed to be older but she's acting like a total mare situation. Oh, tummy cramps. You're just showing off. It's like, look, if she's in her room going, oh god, I feel terrible. She's not showing off. Leave the girl alone. Absolutely. So Rosaline dreams, what if my sister was being chased by wolves through the forest? (laughs) Yes. And these... Got this pack of gorgeous good boys go chasing after her. Absolutely. Be- before we have the transition into the dream, by the way, whereby Alice is being chased through the, the woods by the wolves, it-, it will smack you in the face how much red is used in this film. You've got and red on you. It's largely used as an enhancing colour, and because there's, because it's English or British, and because it's set mostly in a peasant village in, as you say, the Regency era, there's not a lot of other colour knocking around. Mm. So They had have... berries to dye their clothes with, and they had mud. <laughs> we, have, we have some white, after a fashion, which is largely dirty. Whitish grey. Whitish grey. Greyish white. We have some black, which is greyish mostly black. faded. Greyish black. There's a lot of brown. Whitish brown. Kind of a grubby brown. Kind of a greyish um, brown. Yeah. Most of the trees don't really seem to have a lot of green on them. No, they're, they're more kind bit. of greyish trees. But it's trees. very wintry, so yeah. Um, and then you have this red, 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 red popping up everywhere. Mm. In the real world... Is this there is a where... subtext? Mm, we wonder. <laughs> in the real world is where you probably get the most variety in where the red is. Yeah, it's a beige Volvo. So when Alice runs up the stairs, this I I felt was particularly significant. Alice is wearing a white dress. Mm -hmm. It's a very 
this was why I couldn't quite figure out how old she was supposed to be. It's a very sort of Victorian young girl white dress. Mm. But she's wearing red stockings and red shoes. Ah. Which you see as she's running upstairs. Then we cut into Rosalind's bedroom. And she Rosaline. Has, Rosaline, sorry. She has, uh, hanging on the back of her door, a pink dress, but it has a white lining. Mm-hmm. She's wearing a white night dress with red hearts on it. Mm-hmm. And she is... Yes, there's dots of red all over her white dress. Absolutely. And then she has obviously put makeup on before she's gone to sleep. She's yeah. got some very vivid uh, blusher on, or rouge for the American listeners, and very glistening red... Lipstick. She looks for all the world like somebody who is cosplaying being an adult woman. And this is like... So like Sarah in Labyrinth making herself up to be like her mum. experimentations with makeup and and can't quite get it Hmm. to look like anything other than you look like you've got a fever, kid. Because she's so... Like the colour on her cheeks is so high. She looks unwell. Let's get me an aspirin and a fucking hot water bottle. (laughs) Exactly. But, But this whole sort of... This uncomfortable relationship between white and red and it constantly switching backwards and forwards between Mm. the two then carries on throughout the story element yeah absolutely Uh, and also her room uh, obligingly is filled with creepy toys creepy toys toys from Victorian times creepy toys from flipping Blade Runner yeah they they did say uh, Jordan did say in the commentary that it it was really fun it was really fun making these toys which are supposed to be little in a big size and he was like look at this teddy bear for example teddy bears are not supposed to be that big and i'm sat there going have you never seen a really big teddy bear neil they are definitely a thing i buy you a big bear sonia i don't know who he is he's a beef eater there could be a man inside that there's no man inside the bear it's just straw i don't know it's just filled with straw it better not be straw because that's inflammable well, I will not buy a little present for you again. It's not little. It's a massive present. I will present. not buy big I- anyway. How did you get that home anyway? I can't believe... You, 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 you can't drive. You on just the take bus. It you took that on the bus. It's too big. <laughs> yeah, it does have kind of a Blade Runner, kind of a Ridley Scott sort of vibe to it. That sort of... Yeah, early, you see. Yeah. <laughs> you bitch about him, but you're still nicking his ideas. Yeah, no. This and Interview with the Vampire, by far and away, our two favourite Neil Jordan films. Yes. And we might not be back in his territory for a long I while. I can't imagine that we would be, no. We saw High Spirits for the first time since I was about 11 the other day. My God, it's a farce and it's desperately unfunny. Apparently Neil's really cross because they took it away from him. He says the Jordan cut should be released, but I can't imagine what film he shot. You have to really like Steve Gutenberg. He tends to focus on drama more. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the sister Alice is running through the forest. She's pursued by a, a, a toy stuffed bear and a creepy sailor for a bit. She encounters a doll's house filled Mm. with mice. Between growing pains and and, and things aren't the way they should be and I don't understand all these people, horrible shapes in the dark and and things are not where I want them to be and I feel all sticky. Ah! It's, It's a little bit like taking that line about when I was a child I... Uh, or when I became an adult I put away childish things like mice and flipping it on its head to become the childish things are chasing you through the woods and scaring the shit out of you yeah something like that and uh, yeah so the wolves run her down and she's like ah 
but you know, like, you don't get to see her get t torn apart. And in fact, she appears to die pretty perfect because she then uh, we then cut to a, a coffin and she's apparently been murdered by wolves and eaten. But she's like, they they didn't even nip her. <laughs> Like they were just like you're dead now, or maybe she just died of fright, and I they was went. Say, oh, maybe they just frightened. Don't be bothered death. anymore, or, or maybe just Rosalie hadn't wasn't ready to go there in her dream. Yeah. Uh, so she buries her sister, and we never see her again. So it's kind of like she's like, look, you're just you're just making everything worse. What if I just put you in the corner here? Yeah, we had, we do get a gravestone later on. Hmm. What do you want written on your gravestone? Don't go into the woods. It just says Alice. Hmm. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she then goes to stay with Grandmama, played by Angela Lansbury. And Grandmama is a storyteller and uh, kind of gets Rosaline's curiosity burning with all of the stuff she tells her. Rosaline is, much like the sleeping girl, getting very interested in certain things, including boys, and uh, is very curious about the nature of wolves and wild animals and things. She's worried about pain. She she watches like uh, out of the corner of her eye while she's supposed to be asleep. Her parents are having some very boring sex in the corner. And, uh, you know, she asks her mother, do you, you know, does it hurt? And her mother says, your dad? Nope. Um... <laughs> So, sorry, David Warner. I'm sure. I'm sure he was a fine, virile, virile stallion of a man in real life. I love the way you framed it there, but that is totally what she says. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Your dad developed the one pump orgasm for him. <laughs> okay. Oh dear. Uh. So. So, uh, he's, he's shit, though. He is terrible. They, they say something about Alice, and he goes, Oh, don't grieve. Just, just least said, soonest mended. You, you, the three of you are sitting around a table that used to have a fourth person at it. You've got to discuss it at some point. Later on, they get in a fight, and he's punching Brian Glover in the face and going, You might have just killed my only daughter. Not my only remaining daughter, my only daughter. So, like, Brian Glover should have been like, what about thine other daughter into grave? Fine, but she doesn't count. <laughs> what an awful thing to say. Anyway. <laughs> into oh, grave. Brian Glover, you may Do remember. Not people underestimate how much British folk can dismiss emotional topics of conversation. Yeah. Uh, Brian Glover, you may remember, if you're American, he was in Alien 3. He was uh, in the, the, the guy in charge. He was, has a very broad... Is it a, a Yorkshire it's a accent? Yorkshire. Yeah. Uh, and he was in um, American Werewolf in London. He's the loud guy telling the joke at the beginning. And you know, the beware the moor guy. And uh, he used to do bread adverts. Uh, for, he did, yes. Yeah. Allinson's bread. We're now checking We're now out. Checking out. They, the they wouldn't take yeah. anything out of that bread. If, Not all of the grit, nothing. If anybody says the word more, moor, moor. That's a Yorkshire accent. Moor. Right. Uh, so he's barely in this, but he is the uh, father of a little oik who is in this too much. What's his name? Is it Tommy? He or is am the... I getting him mixed up with your Tommy? Tommy Sweeney is the character in my book. Uh, very briefly at the beginning when we're introduced to Abigail, we understand more about Abigail from how he treats her. Let's play a clip. I'll give you a nickel if you kiss me. Tommy Sweeney held up a coin, pinched between the grubby fingers of his fist. Come on, Abigail, what do you say? I stared at him and considered the kind of things a nickel can buy. An apple, a small amount of candy, maybe a down payment on a sausage, 
Why, sir, you do me a great honor with this half tithe in a silver. So you do it? Hell no, I won't. Oh, there you go cussing again. My mama warned me about you. Yet I find you on my goddamn doorstep all the same. I came looking to strike a deal. You're not gonna take no for an answer, are you? That I will not. My daddy tells me to be persistent. A no just means a maybe. A maybe means a yes. So you keep telling me maybe all you want. Oh, you don't give a lady much choice now, do you? I'm just looking to see if the apple fell far from the tree. See, my daddy also told me about what your mama used to do for a living. Plain stands to reason you'd follow suit. Well, aren't you a little detective? So I'm asking you here why the getting's good. All right, Tommy. Close your eyes. Oh, boy. Lean forward. I wonder what I'll get for a quarter. I was fierce as shit back in 1873. All of 13 and convinced I already knew how the world worked. <laughs> if you'd just been a gentleman about it, I would have kissed you, but you had to be a prick, didn't you? Mama! Abigail swear to take the last day in vain and she socked me right in the face! And take your goddamn nickel with you! <laughs> Okay, so this guy, Amorous Boy... Okay, so he's not... Never right. gets a name. Okay. He's sniffing around... He's Tommy in my nose. He's sniffing around Rosalie's crotch, and he's just like, Rosalie, can I kiss thy? And she's like, mm, I, don't, I don't know. How about now? Can I kiss thy now? Come over here, close your eyes, and then, like, pours water on him. And then he's like, I'm going to chase you now, Rosalie! And, like... He kind of gets into a thing where the only way he can get at her attention is by negging her, yep. chasing her, yeah. grabbing her, agitating and, and teasing her. Oh, do you not like me? Well, no, I like you. Well, why won't you kiss me? There's a difference between wanting to kiss someone and not liking them. You and operate within that middle area, but also, you're, you're drifting towards one of them. <laughs> like is a very broad term. I don't wish you any specific harm. <laughs> I'm a well-wisher. I don't want you dead. But, again, it's like, a broad spectrum. If wolves turned up, I would be happy that I'm faster than you. So, <laughs> yeah, amorous boy is... <coughs> yeah, we're going to have conversations about pigtails and inkwells. This is like the, the writ large example of the whole, okay, when you get to a certain age, girls, you have to balance how you treat fucking irritating boys <laughs> because if you snap at them too much they might lose interest and how are you going to get a husband then by which point in the conversation i've wandered off to do something more interesting yeah. if they lose interest you might get the reputation as a crazy woman or you get labeled as a tease or frigid or a slut or a teasing frigid slut which even as a boy i can't get my head around <sighs> all, all right just bring me the cats yeah or they might. <laughs> there is a possibility they might kill you, but uh, you well, know, just 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 bear that in mind, ladies. There is that. That's not not in this film as a uh, theme. In fact, it's quite definitely there. Absolutely, there is a point where a character literally uses lycanthropy as a metaphor for beating his wife. Yes. Uh, so either way, Tommy. He's not. His name's not Tommy. Amorous kids chasing her around, trying to kiss her, but he's clearly very immature and not. She, she's not particularly interested in him, and she kind of ends up running away. He sees a. And, and, and shouts, wolf, wolf, and runs back to the uh, uh, town crying, wolf. See what she did there? Yep. And then the town go on to a sort of a wolf hunt. But what 
what we've done here is we've sidestepped a lot of the storytelling. I just wanted to sort of give you an idea as to sort of where Rosaline is. Her grandmother's house is the only place you can go to get some fucking peace and quiet. Absolutely. And she kind of is more infantilized there. It's grandma's always treat us a little bit well, younger than we are. From from grandma, she gets the the stories that grandma tells, and while they are brilliant stories, and I like them a lot, they have that feeling of the stay in the circle stay in the circle tale. stay close to the fire the don't idea... trust men with eyebrows that meet in the middle yeah. don't, don't tr trust men with men generally don't trust men with hairy palms Which... if they were born feet first at what point in conversation do i ask about that <laughs> like, oh, uh, hang on hang on uh, yeah lovely i've been to berkshire lovely place lovely place. were you born feet first <laughs> <laughs> You were? Okay, so I'm going to go. No, it's, it's something my grandmother said. It's about lycanthropy. So, oh, werewolves. I, I think you're a werewolf. And the big eyebrow and the... Oh, you're, sorry, you actually... You are turning into a werewolf right now. So, gra <laughs> Granny, yeah, you know, interesting... Sorry, one second. Granny, he says hi. She says hi back. You were right about the whole eyebrows winking in the middle and the feet. Uh, yeah, I thought it was an old wives' tale, but it turns out you're right. He was born on... Christmas Day? Christmas Day, yep, yep. Okay, he's eating me. He is now eating me, Grandma. <laughs> and what big teeth he has. Anyway. <laughs> oh, dear me. But yeah, the the the, the idea of oh. the fairy tale being... The, the purpose that it serves is to fence young women in without actually having to build a fence and make them scared enough of the woods that they don't go wandering off and that way you get to keep them within the group and that way you get to have some measure of control over what wombs are available to you. It's astounding how much comes down to keeping control of what wombs are available to you. The old wives play into this, it would appear. Well, yes, indeed. And yet the mother had this really good quote when she uh, when she asks, does dad hurt you? She also asks of Granny, the wolves in the forest, do they beat the bitches as well after they mate? Yeah, because Granny says once they've had their way with you, they'll just smack you about. Yeah. Nothing you can do about it. Uh, she asks her mum, uh, you know, does, does dad hurt you? And... Her mother kind of gets straight to the uh, the meat of this particular worry of her, her daughter and says, if there's a beast in men, it finds its match in women too. And at that point, I sat back and went, can we hear more from the mum, please? <laughs> she is, seems wiser than grandmama. It is worth noting that that is the conclusion of the whole film. Yeah. That women are wolves too. And that given the opportunity, if that is a girl's true nature, that's the way she'll go. Yeah. I love that. It's like the battle of the sexes, but I ain't giving up the sex till you put me in a Lexus. I know you're out for the ass, nigga, but how the fuck you figure till you caught up the cash, nigga? You see, I'm out to get my grip on. And if you're being good boy, I got some juice you can sip on. So won't you take me to your castle? And if you're sitting on the plane, watch your ass get dappled. I might be cute with dimples, but be driving a Benz or catch a slug in the temple. So don't fuck with my crew. You should know my Bitches are hustlers too. I thought you knew. I thought you knew. I thought you knew. 
Okay, so the first actual story, we've, we've hopped, skipped and jumped past it several times. Uh, I call it The Hasty Bride. It's about a uh, lady who gets married to Stephen Rear and is very happy about it. Uh, Stephen Rear is a, uh, a, a real Neanderthal-looking guy, massive, sort of big, ridged brown. He's got, he looks like Ron Perlman without the lovability. And he is most definitely Neil Jordan's Robert De Niro. You may remember him from such films as Interview with a Vampire, where he played irritating vampire What Goes Upside Down, or the guy from The Crying Game. So the person who marries this catch is a not especially bright young lady who uh, finds she has a hedgehog in her bed, joke from her uh, brother, and uh, she's sort of nervously settling into the first night after her wedding, and uh, it's, it's all sort of the wedding ceremony takes place in the same kind of set and it suggests that this happened in the village a while ago. Yeah. And Stephen Rear sort of gets up in his nightshirt before they've actually done anything, hears howling outside and then goes and hangs around the door and makes to leave for a bit. And she says, where are you going? And he turns back with these fantastic sort of orange-yellow contacts in and goes, Carl of Nature and then wanders out into the night and then apparently does not come back for, for years. years. <laughs> and then the hasty... That was a really long piss. <laughs> yeah. And then the hasty bride, after <laughs> only three years, remarries and has children. In her defence, the men of the village tell her her husband has obviously been killed by wolves. Yes. Not massively bright, but frankly, even being particularly bright. Like, if your husband jilts you on your wedding night, you take the hint. And also, this is a bit racist, and he is not liked by the village folk anyway, mm. because... Uh, He's a travelling man? Out, he is a traveller. Yes. If you can imagine, most medieval hamlets were, there's talk of strange folk abroad. Just anyone new yeah. to the village would Here's be treated with uh, paranoia. We need peddlers and the like, because otherwise how are we going to get stuff to buy that comes from anywhere outside of a 20 mile mm. radius? But also, don't trust anybody who doesn't have their own house. Because mm. otherwise, how are we going to know where to find them if they fuck up? Like Agatha in WandaVision. No home. Anyway, I mean, there's there's something that could be drawn between medieval hamlets and their paranoia of outsiders and closed-in suburban communities. Yes, it's called not much changing for 500 years. Yeah. Okay, so uh, she gets jiggy with uh, a different husband, an older, more responsible man who uh, is probably a woodcutter by trade. I can't remember. Don't. He's got an axe. And... <laughs> Wow, so you saying it was fun? Oh, no, that's humble out an axe. And then she's sitting around feeding three gorgeous little baby children. Uh, they say gorgeous. Yes. Gross, rotten little monsters then, drooling all over the place. Whereupon, Stephen Rear comes home. And he comes in with, like, hair down to there. He's just, you know, he's, he's, his shirt's sort of hanging open. Uh, he's got those contacts in again, and he looks dazed and confused and angry. Looks like he's been a wolf for the last three years. For three freaking years. Then found some clothes on a washing line. Uh, and also his hair's grown out while in wolf form, question mark. Wolf with a haircut. Um, Two bits. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't laugh at that. He is quite unreasonable and says, These children aren't mine. We never had sex at all. You've been carrying it on with some kind of woodcutter, you slag. And it's like, dude, what did you expect? You turned up at the village and then you left just as quickly. 
Like you didn't even shag her and leave her. You just married her and left her. It's 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 astonishing. And then while all the children are crying, he says he's going to teach this whore a lesson and starts turning into a werewolf. Now, when I say turning into a werewolf, we're going to have some fun with this, folks, because this was the golden age of prosthetic werewolf transformations. Late 70s to uh, early 90s was effectively when the folks like Rick Baker were at the absolute peak of their ability and metamorphosizing and going shot to shot with adding a little more prosthetics and then focusing on a different part of the body. Werewolf transformation is perfect for this kind of tech, is perfect for this kind of, uh, I, I suppose, body horror and at the same time fascination. Mm-hmm. Even I'm surprised that Cronenberg um, never did a werewolf film. Yeah, even the sequence in Teen Wolf, which is a, mm. a kind of a, a kids movie and a comedy, mm. is that particular scene is played scary. Scott yeah. is terrified of all these things that are changing. Exactly. And of course, we are doing a three-part series on the first three The Howling movies, uh, which is available on the Patreon for our folks who are on the bonus tier of $5 or higher. Here's a clip. When he turns into a werewolf, he's got this horrible... Like, a werewolf with a moustache doesn't work already. Like, that, you've already screwed up. Weird whiskers. So he gets a hairier face, but, like, slightly balder chin than you'd imagine. Like, so he gets the big werewolf contacts in his eyes, and he gets massive, huge teeth, and starts grinning away, because he's just... He's really liking turning into a werewolf. And just to make it that much grosser for Sharon, he just this massive thread of drool just just trickles out of his lips and he's sort of glaring down at this girl turning into a werewolf as well and going yes yes werewolf time and like i said somebody on the effects team went nuts with the ky thinking about it do you remember that jack nicholson film wolf yes with james spader and michelle pfeiffer that should have been cronenberg do that with the kind of dark intensity of uh eastern promises or a history of violence but not with the creepiness of Crash. <laughs> I mean, creepiness, yes, because you've got James Spader, it's inherent. But just, like, Cronenberg could have killed that one. Anyway, so what actually happens here, his werewolf transformation involves, and this is going to get quite gruesome, so if you are squeamish, jump ahead by two minutes. See if you can, if you, if you haven't seen this film, we recommend you find it and see it. It's fantastic. But if you're only going to watch a bit of it, watch this werewolf transformation. It's exceptional in its own field. He tears the skin off his face, not even just like in one, like pulling the skin off a lasagna. Like he, he's just like scraping away at the outsides and then like, ah, ah, just pulling and just like, it's, it's coming away in bits. And eventually you've got this kind of like bloody stump of a head with these eyes and the sort of a fangy mouth just going and he's he's obviously a puppet but like they are not done yet and it is bright red and glistening and then his snout bursts out of his mouth and it's just kind of like it, it goes into a dog from a human skull shape to a dog skull shape in one smooth fluid in camera motion and he starts to deform and you get more and more of him sort of pulling out of the rest of his skin. And uh, it it's 
fucking disgusting, but you can't look away. Mm, yeah, gross but fascinating is exactly what I wrote. The fact that all of these, and it, it's the fact that it comes in layers. Like it yeah. takes the skin off, and then there's muscle that has to come off, yeah. and then the shape. Is and his hand is all bony. Has to grow and, out, yeah. and then eventually, like the wolf has to grow, like the fur and everything has to grow yeah. on top of that. It's, and the fact that it hurts him. Yeah. It's so painful, visually and in his howling mm. and, and squirming. CGI transformations for werewolves are one of the things that absolutely ruined how how brilliant this on-screen creature is. But also because they, they made them PG-13, so they lowered the intensity of the pain. It went from three minutes of absolute agony and the most disgusting but jaw-dropping effects work to he's gonna turn into a werewolf, it's gonna take about 20 seconds and it's mostly kind of like his head's gonna just disappear in three different moves and then he's gonna be a werewolf howling and he'll be all furry and there's no blood involved whatsoever. And this actually draws from ancient folklore and superstition that werewolves or lycanthropes and wolfmen and things that were understood to be animals in human form before the word werewolf was even coined were furry on the inside and simply shed their human skin to reveal the wolf underneath. And this is kind of like a, what would that look like and how gruesome would it appear? And one TV show that absolutely definitely took its visual cues on the transformations from this is a show called Hemlock Grove. That has the goriest, most painful looking werewolf transformations I've ever seen. But it brings in that concept of something's true nature. Yeah, a man is a beast underneath. What, what clothes is it wearing to make itself look like a man and what happens when those clothes are gone? Oh, uh, the uh, woodcutter husband bursts in just like the woodcutter in Red Riding Hood. Just in time, the now finally transformed wolf turns around and goes, Aah! and then he strikes his head off in one blow and it's one of those fantastic like it sails in slow motion across the room falls into a pail of milk which is uh, even worse and then the milk goes pink as it bobs down beneath the surface but when it comes back up again it is the disembodied head of Stephen Rear and there's kind of milk in its eye sockets and it looks sad and, and uh, horrified at the same time and there's a kind of a oh feeling about that like, no one could ever understand this beast of a man, and now he's dead. And after the wolf is beheaded, the hasty bride has a little moment of pause, and then gets slapped upside the head by the woodcutter. It looks just the same. As the day I married him. Such a great selection of dudes in this town. But this, this is something that I, I'm not sure which side the film ultimately comes down on because the idea that the wolf, when killed, turns back into a man mm. suggests that the man is its true nature. That inside but the that, wolf is in fact a man? But that doesn't seem to be the case and especially at the end, mm. the wolf that she encounters is a man and turns into a wolf when injured. Now admittedly he doesn't die, but it still that still suggests that it is that the wolf is his true self and that comes out when his uh, physical self is compromised. Inside you there are two wolves. One of them is in fact a man. <laughs> 
Okay, uh, the second story uh, is uh, involves Terence. It's very short. This one, Terence Stamp is the devil. And you know he's a devil because he's driving a Rolls Royce. And this is the Regency well, right. period when cars shouldn't be. He's being driven in a Rolls Royce. <laughs> Sorry, yes. He's by a lady Royce. clad in white whom I shall call Mercy. And uh, she... Uh, it's the same actress as plays Rosaline. Oh, nice. Nice. So she... He's too young to drive. Yeah. <laughs> so she drives him through the woods and this compl- you know, spotty young youth is just standing there gawping. And Terence Stamp sort of opens up... Uh, first off... Oh, what a fucking actor. Like, the door f- opens for him, and Terence Stamp is regarding a small skull upon his hands, going, Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest. He hath borne me on his back a thousand times. Where be your jibes now? Your snatches of merriment that would catch the table on a roar? That. And... Uh, he doesn't say all that, but that's the implication. And he just sort of reaches, he goes, right, enough with that skull. Reaches down, grabs a small bottle of something, and hands it out to this spotty kid. And goes, there you go. Waste not, want not. Now fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that he's Richmond from uh, <laughs> the, uh, the IT crowd. If you uh, uh, listen to Cradle of Filth, it's actually quite beautiful. It is, actually, but don't listen, just read the lyrics. Oh. He gives him the bottle and goes, there, <coughs> now you're fucked. <laughs> no, he gives him the bottle, which is unspecified God knows what, and... Hair restorer, it would appear. Uh, something like that. And then he drives off in his Rolls Royce, and it seems like the boy was just praying and praying all night, going, oh, I wish I had some jest hair like Jason Priestley. And... <laughs> <laughs> And the boy's like, oh, I suppose I should just put a little, a little dab will do me, right? And then he puts, gets, gets his finger in there, puts a little dab on his chest, and then he starts growing big, black, thick, curly hair on his chest, and he's like, ooh, 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 ooh. and then a bunch of vines start crawling up up around his uh, ankles, like the forest has gotten a hold of him, and he goes. <gasps> And his chest hair just keeps on growing. And then the, the camera's panning out. He's like, ah, ah. But keep watching, because at the very end he goes, ah. Because <laughs> it's like, well, you know, the, the vines didn't keep on growing. And I definitely didn't have that whole evil dead tree thing happen to me, because I'm a dude. But, you know, I've got this hairy chest now, and there's nothing I can do about it. So, effectively, it's 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 puberty anxiety. And this is one of the few times that the sleeping girl wakes up with, Oh, shit! Black curly hair! I don't know where that's from! And um, then goes back to sleep again. So, it's that's kind of more of a penny dreadful, Ah, don't trust you know, handsome, talented strangers you meet in the forest. I'm reminded of the... 1990 version of The Witches where the woman who works in the hotel finds yeah, some of them. Yeah, finds some of them, yeah. Puts it on, puts her neck, it on her neck and then and gets a bit hairy in her neck. <laughs> like, that makes more sense if you're a woman who doesn't want to be hairy. If you're a guy who's like, I wish I had chest hair, and then you grow chest hair, why are you well, screaming? Clearly it's be careful what you wish for. But, like, this is one where they should just go completely overboard and make him look like a Wookiee at the end. Well, yes. Like, he's got a hairy everything. Yeah. And it's become remarkably inconvenient because he's a blacksmith's apprentice and he keeps singeing his elbow hair on the floor. <laughs> Merrily singeing the Queen of Spain's beard. Okay, stave four, The Grey Wedding. This might be my favourite of all the stories. Mm. So, oh no, I, I really like some of the later ones. Okay, so I really, really like this one. Uh, and first off, Granny gives her, here you go, your red riding hood. 
And it's like, okay, that's a little on the nose. Cool, cool. <laughs> it's also a very modern, vivid red. Yeah. For Regency era village. Wait, they dye them with berries. In You're not going to get this color with berries. In textile factories. Mm. I had a, I had a cardigan this color mm. in 1984. The fact that it had a Marks and Spencer's logo <laughs> on the inside. Around about this time, Rosalie is also asking her mother um, about the bad reputation of wolves. She's, she's been, she's aware that there are wolves in the forest and she's kind of feeling a little bit sorry for them at this point. Like they're out there howling in the cold. They've got no one to, uh, to protect them. There's almost kind of a Wendy-ish feel about her going, you know, yes. I, I kind of want to look after these lost boy wolves. Yeah. She tells her mother uh, a story about writing a wrong and it's a lady who uh, has, has certain kind of uh, traveler motifs to her as well. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly seems a little Romany. Um, turns up at a very foppish, powdered wig, Regency wedding. And then this lady with straggled hair turns up and her sort of her, her dress is very peasanty. And she walks sort of in and turns sideways and you can see she is very heavy with child. And she sort of stalks around the room while everyone stares at her, much like the Phantom of the Opera. Why so silent, good monsieurs? Did you think that I had left you for good? Have you missed me, good monsieurs? I have written you an opera. Sir, this is indeed an unparalleled delight. You've got all these disgusting aristocrats stuffing their face with greasy chicken and like wearing lace gloves and things. And you've got the band just slaving away to play them all kinds of Regency music. And then the lady curses them all instantly in, in a way that kind of reminded me of the, <clears throat> sorry about this, Lardass story in The Goonies, where it's a story within a story about a big gathering that goes completely tits up. <laughs> And the entire compliment of the wedding... Is that the Goonies or is that Stand By Me? Sorry, there? Stand By Me, not the Goonies. Corey Feldman was in both. I forgot. I understand. And so everyone at the wedding starts turning into a werewolf. And it's very much focused this time, rather on, on, than on gruesome special effects, upon the uh, black satirical comedy of seeing all of these beautiful dresses ripped asunder as bodices uh, reveal hairy chests and uh, the, these sort of dainty little shoes with buckles on them burst dog paws out of them. And eventually you've got 10 Alsatians with clothes barely hanging onto them. <laughs> and the lady's like, right, off your pop. And all of these dogs just barrel out of this tent and straight across the lawns past one peacock. Keep your eye on the peacock, folks, because the peacock falls over because he is so flabbergasted that all of these Alsatians run past him. And the peacock's like, oh, 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 oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I'm alive, I'm alive, oh my god. That was, that was the scariest fucking thing I've ever seen. Watch the peacock next time, folks. And so all of these dogs are run off, have run off and they're effectively now the slaves of this lady to serenade her while she uh, uh, suckles her baby in the bower of a tree late at night in the woods and it's fun, dark, macabre little ending. But the cherry on top is that the band, with all of the posh Regency folk, aside from going, well, I guess we've been paid already. We just find another wedding. Um, so we get to eat all this food. Yeah. They toast the fact that all of the fops are gone and uh, eat all the food. 
Where did you hear a story like that? Not a story, but God's honest truth. Granny told me. And after that, the woman made the wolves come to sing to her and the baby at night. Made them come and serenade her. <sighs> but what pleasure would there be in that, listening to a lot of wolves? Don't we have to do it all the time? The pleasure would come from knowing the power that she had. Treat. <laughs> So, stave five, Red Riding Hood. We've got Rosalie finally going, okay, I need to do a rite of passage. No more of uh, bringing that horrible, rotten kid along, who, by the way, lives through this film. Like, I feel like he should have been eaten by wolves, but he's almost too simple for it. Yeah. It's not his territory. And she's like, right, I'm not going to let him neg me anymore. I'm going to go into the forest on my own. And she meets a handsome stranger. And this guy's French, and he's sort of a, a young gentleman, and he's got kind of a, a roguish, rakish quality. He's considerably older than her, and he's kind of a creep. Is he the worst man in this film? He is the best man in this film. <laughs> Eyebrows meeting right in the middle. Yeah, I mean, he's He's not, regaling her with stories of a compass. He's not really the best. When, when you say he's a creep, listen to Alex. The dude is a creep. Yeah. He's not pleasant. I mean, he's kind of giving her a little bit of romance. Remember, he is a component of her dream, so she's kind of dreamed this guy up Absolutely. to be quite forward with her. Yeah. But at the same time, he is... He does have a little decorum and about it. It is, it is a common element of dreams to have this kind of dark stranger figure who is both incredibly repulsive and scary and also quite... Attractive's not quite the right word, but but attractive and and draws you in and and fa is fascinating and and sort of so a, has that vibe of it. A bad boy that your subconscious is experimenting with. It, kind of, yeah. It's it's almost like there is a bit of I can fix him about this. There is, there is, and to not to race to the end, but we're pretty much there. The the fact that he turns out to be a lot better as a wolf. <laughs> To. You want to get yourself a dog, love. Um, You're a lousy dude, but a good boy. <laughs> but wolf. A, good, a good boy. Um, <laughs> um, the 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 story of the the woman who's turned the wedding party into wolves. The at the end of it, because this is Rosaline is telling this story to, to her, her mother, mother, yeah. And her mother says, "Why on earth would you want to listen to wolves howling? Don't we have to listen to that all the time?" And Rosaline says, "Well, no. It's the fact that she knows then she has the power. Hearing them howl mm. reminds her of the power she had over them to turn them all into wolves. Yeah. And effectively, having the power to—it's it, not so much that Rosaline turns this guy into a wolf because he was obviously a wolf, a, a werewolf. He was getting there." But it is her actions that trigger his transformation. The guy says, I challenge, much like the big bad wolf, I challenge you to a race to Grandmama's house. I've never been there. But he's got a compass, folks, and if, that will help him find the way. If I get there before you, then uh, I, you know, you owe me a kiss. So there's a, it's a neat moment where he says, and he's sort of, he's picking her up very gently and slowly from where they've been sitting. And he says, for believing in old wives' tales, you deserve to be. And it's like, she's paying him rapt attention at this point. All he has to be is a gentleman. And then he follows that up with, punished! And then sort of like, bends her over his, his knee backwards, rather than, for, 
and he does drop to drop her to the ground. He drops her back to the ground and then sort of like play fights with her a little bit, but it's it's a fucking juvenile thing to do, and she's looking for a grown up at this stage yeah. in her mind. But I suppose she she's like, well, what is a grown up at, at this stage? Maybe some guy who doesn't do this. I'll show you. I'm not afraid of the wolves, Rosalind. I'll make a bet with you. I bet you anything you like that I get to your granny's house before you do. Because I'll use my compass to help me across the country while you trudge along the dreary path. Bet me your compass. Bet you your heart's desire. And if I lose? You can... Give me a kiss. Here, take my hat as a token of goodwill. Wear it until we meet again. So yeah, he, he challenges her to a race, uses his compass, immediately gets to Grandma's house, uh, steps inside, and Angela Lansbury is onto him in you know from from Jump Street. And it's not much of a fight, but if you're going to go out in a movie, having your head whapped off by a wolf sailing through the air, and rather than falling into a milk churn, just shattering like that of fine porcelain against the wall, so like it, it suddenly becomes like a china head. It's sort of an elegant but sad denouement for the, uh, for the Grandmama character, but it's also kind of a, and Grandmama is gone now, and only the maiden remains situation. And all power to her, Angela Lansbury pretty much owns this film. And so if you should spy on a naked man in the wood, run as if the devil himself were after you. Oh, you can't trust anyone, least of all a priest. He's not called father for nothing. Soft as snow. Red as a berry. Red as blood. <laughs> oh, does the old fool want to brain me? What's he up to in the tree, the old monkey? Father. Are you climbing up to heaven and chopping the rungs of the ladder after you? You've got a lot to learn, child. <laughs> never stray from the path, never eat a windfall apple, and never trust a man whose eyebrows meet. A wolf may be more than he seems. He may come in many disguises. What's that? The wolf that ate your sister was hairy on the outside, but when she died, she went straight to heaven. The worst kind of wolves are hairy on the inside. And when they bite you, they drag you with them to hell. A couple of tweets got posted on our Discord the week after Angela passed. One from Tess Sharp. My favourite fact about Angela Lansbury is that during her murder she wrote era, she made it a practice to hire guest actors of the golden age that had aged out of the game because it allowed them to earn the union points they needed for insurance, pensions, etc. And then Molly Katie adds, Lansbury had the recurring role of the librarian Jean O'Neill, created for Madeline Rue to ensure she could keep her health insurance while living with MS. The lady was a treasure. Mm -hmm. 
And if you want to tie her crowning glories doubly to the Company of Wolves, the book of short stories is based on The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter, includes The Tiger's Bride, which is a Beauty and the Beast tale, where at the end, beauty is transformed to a beautiful tigress. I have gotta read this. So back to Rosaline rushing through the forest. She does reach Grandma's house. To his credit, this guy does not dress in, uh, in Grandma's clothes and pretend to be her grandma. He does pretend to be her grandma when she knocks on the door. He makes his voice all squeaky and says, lift the latch and come. Yes, but, but that's he doesn't hide under the uh, covers and pretend to be an old lady. Then there's this kind of dark... You want a cookie? Then there's this... <laughs> a dog biscuit. <laughs> but then there's this kind of uh, uneasy dance between the two of them. And you can come back in now with what you were doing. She grabs the shotgun. Thankfully. Eventually. It, it's, it's kind of, he's, he knows she knows what he really is. Yeah. He's implying you, but you really want it, don't you? And at this stage, the suggestion is that he intends to eat her in the food sense. Yes. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and then she pretends to go along with it. And this is the only bit, really, apart from the sort of grabbing her and kissing her in the woods, which is a bit sort of, uh the the fact that he gets really close in and sort of undoes her shawl and takes off this red shawl that her grandmother has knitted for her unfortunately i couldn't shake the just step back a couple of inches you don't need to be that close to her mm. um <clears throat> again she's 14. absolutely but that's that's as far as it goes in terms of the the inappropriate physical contact but he takes the, the shawl off and she says, well, what am I going to do with it now? And he says, yeah, throw it on the, throw fire. It on the fire. You won't need you won't it need anymore. It. Now, the, the shawl obviously being the last symbolic protection that her grandmother gave her. And she is giving that up. That's the, the whole sort of the journey into adulthood involves relinquishing being protected by other adults. And that sort of indicates her willingness to go along with his, uh, I'm going to, get your clothes off and then eat you plan but it is then revealed to be a ruse because in her sort of she goes into this dreamlike oh this is all gonna be okay and i'm i'm enjoying this and your company and she wanders over to the window and grabs his rifle and turns around and threatens him with <laughs> and we've already had david warner grab his gun when he went off to hunt the wolf illustrating that this great big phallic thing is the only thing that animals respect mm. i will either i will kill him or he will kill me indeed but the there's there's a, a a kind of a grappling ensues she fires the gun and shoots him in the arm ah if the gun goes off twice the first time it shatters a lamp and he goes That's and it and kind of howls on the uh, rug because she's hurt him a little bit, and which again makes her go, oh, I'm sorry, poor Mr. Wolfman. Mm -hmm. So he goes back and forth between sort of uh, playing the wounded soldier yeah. and then saying, ah, but you did promise me that if I got there first, that you'd give me a kiss. I'm a gentleman. Do ladies keep their promises? Basically, again, he's not much a, more no, than that fucking kid it going, is a dance. don't you like me? Absolutely, but it is a dance and there is this sort Do you of, like bread? He pretends, I've got French loaf. she pretends, Boof. but they both have ulterior motives and eventually the fact that she manages to actually shoot him and she catches him in the arm and that's the point at which he then starts to transform. He also licks his eyebrows, ladies. <laughs> and it looks gross, don't even. Um. <laughs> this was German actor Misha Berges' first film role, and he's really hypnotic. He's got these like little 
bird-like movements that he makes with his head as he's sort of slowly approaching her, stripped to the waist. So while there is definitely a looming, sexy threat, he's also very animalistic. And it's a very physical performance for a very physical fantasy. And then when he transforms, you get a lot of his undulating naked back as he's going... Rrrr! But the fact that she claims agency and is able to stop him in his tracks and set the terms of their engagement reminds me of Werner Herzog's 1979 remake of Nosferatu with Isabella Arjani as Lucy Harker telling Klaus Kinski's Count Dracula, another fantastic physical performance, salvation comes from ourselves alone. The, what, what I was getting at with the whole, the, the woman who transforms the wedding party in the middle story, having the power to turn them all into wolves, this is where the power comes to Rosaline. That it's her actions in shooting him that causes him to shed his human skin. And the transformation is not as long and drawn out and painful And nowhere near as, as bloody. Basically, he's furry underneath already, rather than sinewy and, and full of yeah, blood. Yeah, he, he kind of... His skin just rips off down the back and he steps out just, of it. Just comes right the off. The wolf's right there. Yeah, I mean, like, the furry <coughs> snout comes right through his mouth. It does, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's it. So initially it looks as though the wolf is trying to get out through the man. Yeah. And again, this is what I mean about his transformation feels very much more like the wolf is his true self. Mm. The man is just a coat he happened to be wearing in order to try and catch prey, and it didn't work very well. Although she does ask him... Uh, where do you live? Do you live with people or do you live outside yes. with them? Yes. Oh, they have this wonderful conversation about whether he is... A, she says, are you of us or of them? And he says both. And then she says, where do you live? And he says, I, I could go back and forth between two worlds. My home is nowhere. He is a liminal person, somebody who exists between these states of wolf and human, dream and reality, of child and adult. <laughs> And all of these sort of transitional, in terms of time and place and person, if you if you think of the whole thematic element of the story of being about this process of growing from a child into an adult and effectively being told by the adults around you, don't. Don't grow up. It's dangerous. Don't grow up. You'll want things you shouldn't have. Don't grow up. You'll have expectation. How the fuck are you supposed to stop it? You can't put a brick on your head. Okay, you're growing up now, get married. When are you going to give me a grandchild? <laughs> Dad, it's been a day and a half. <laughs> Indeed. So he he's turning into a... What you want is a mortgage. One. Oh, God, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> when he... Uh, it, the wolf emerges from him in, in response to the injury and the, in his wolf form he is less of a threat to her than he was as a man and this is the, the sort of the, the capsule ending that I absolutely love about this she has been warned about wolves throughout this whole story and there has been this underpinning of men are dangerous too but you've kind of just got to tolerate that and in the end her dreaming mind says actually no do you know what I'd rather have the wolf thank you <laughs> And that's, that puts the power back in her hands. She is now more in control of that wolf. And he's such a good boy. Oh, my goodness. And it, this one is an actual wolf, yeah. not a dog. There were two he's wolves adorable. in the UK, and they had to find and <coughs> bring both of them in. And uh, according to um, Neil uh, in the commentary again, she was very trusting with this wolf on, on set. So the actual the footage that we've got of her, this wolf is nuzzling against her and seems to be acting like an affectionate dog. 
Uh, but apparently when they tried to get her on to a, an interview uh, to do some promotion for the film, the wolf was supposed to sort of come on with its trainer and went fucking berserk. Possibly because the studio setting there was completely different to what it was used Entirely to. Entirely feasible, yeah. yeah. Rather than sort of talking about them with uh, sort of uh, the, the awe and fascination, Neil Jordan's like, oh yeah, they can bite a baseball bat in half. You don't want to get on the wrong side of a wolf. I was like, cool, okay. <laughs> but uh, what effectively happens in the film is uh, she's uh, he turns into a wolf and she takes pity on him. And as we said... As a wolf, he's no longer pushy. He's not trying to eat her. He's not trying to do much of anything. He's just yeah. sort of sitting by the fire um, and they're kind of sharing a moment. Yeah, the whole point of her comment at the beginning to her mother of um, the... or No, it's the, the grandmother, that's it, who's saying that men will all just smack you about once they've had their way. Mm. And she says, well, what about wolves? Do the dogs beat the bitches when they've had... Her point is, no, they fucking don't. Mm. <laughs> But this is the point where she tells the wolf a story now. So she tells the wolf a story about a she-wolf. She's like, right, let's put some feminine energy in here. And uh, it's uh, a story about this wolf that crawls out of the well in the town. And it's a sort of a, the, uh, it's, it's her little village at night. And this, you know, well-trained wolf crawls out and walks around the place looking a little bewildered. And this has been a recurring well throughout the story. It's actually at the very, very beginning. The, uh, the family dog runs past this well in the woods. And it's the passage to the underworld. I'll tell you a story of a wounded wolf. Once upon a time, when the village was asleep, a she-wolf came from the world below to the world above. Just a girl after all, who'd strayed from the path in the forest and remembered what she'd found there. So as you can hear, there's this recurring motif of the world below and specifically the world outside of civilization, the world outside of man. And it's this shadowy, mysterious place that Rosaline is clearly very curious of. The subtext I'm reading is everything beyond what she knows about the adult world that has not been told to her. She kind of wants to go and explore that, but it's also terrifying. Yeah, but the the whole sort of the, the wolf being poorly treated is feeds into the stay in the circle, here's all these stories that tell you how dangerous it is out there, stay here with your family and the people that you know. The people that she knows are rotten to her. Yeah. And she is not well um, 
Uh, cared for. Her mother doesn't come upstairs and go, oh my god, so, honey, Paul, you got cramps, let me get you an aspirin and a hot water bottle. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's like, well, okay, you're telling me that this is the only safe place, but this is shit. Yeah. Are you surprised I'm looking for an alternative? Also specifically, all of that wildness, <coughs> we will shoot that out of you if we must. Yeah. We don't want try. any of that here. Thank yes. you. Indeedy. So then, it's night time, and the dream world and the story world kind of merged together so even the story within a story kind of leaps back up through regency era uh rosaline's parents burst into grandmama's house uh, after one wolf has just barged out of the window to find another wolf with rosaline's crucifix necklace sat in front of the fire having embraced her animal side she then scampers out the window and runs off into the night Absolutely. and I need to praise the music of George Fenton, which comes to a climax at this point. The finale is probably going to be, would have been quite confusing to 1984 audiences or anyone taking this film very literally. It rises up and it's been this theme the whole way through, but now it's like crescendoing. And all of these wolves are sort of running through the forest, but they're sort of like making for the real world. They run through the house, which is now run down and old and full of ivy and dust. And it's almost like... She's, she has no use for this real-world house anymore, and it's alien to her. They scamper up uh, to the, uh, through the corridor to where her sister was, banging on the door trying to get her out of bed, and they're scrabbling at the door, and they're pushing through the paintings, and then one very good boy smashes through a plate glass window, her window, pushing over all of these creepy Victorian toys in slow motion and trying to sort of pull itself through. And it's accompanied by like a clock chiming as the hour has finally struck and this girl just, all you hear is this girl screaming blue murder. And then the credits roll and you get a spine tingling poem. Little girls. This seems to say, never stop upon your way. Never trust a stranger friend. No one knows how it will end. As you're pretty, so be wise. Wolves may lurk in every guise. Now, as then, tis simple truth. Sweetest tongue has sharpest tooth. If you have enjoyed this episode, you may in fact love to read the latest book that Sharon and I helped to put together. And this one is nothing to do with my current ongoing book series. Instead of a new century novel this time, it is a collection of 18 short gothic stories written entirely by folks from the School of Movies community. We organized it this year through our Discord and it blossomed into this dark flower bed of prose. Now it is available on Amazon as of Halloween 2022 in both Kindle and beautiful paperback form. We will keep the price low for the time being, so if as many of you folks as possible buy it on the day, then it will help the book to gain visibility online. Read it, talk about it, gush about it from the heart. If you don't love it, don't worry. But if you do, leave us a positive review if you'd like to help other people find and read it. So the title you need to be searching for is The Lights from Distant Bonfires. And a massive shout out to everyone who collaborated on this with your amazing, stirring, atmospheric writing. 
So that's Lincoln Alpern, James Batchelor, Name Chaibiti, Greg Downing, Jesse Ferguson, Chris Finnick, Nick Jaragoski, Hannah Peregrine, Maya Suris, Alejandra Vargas, Bradford Yerku, Sharon Shaw, and Willow Shaw. Frankly, I may be a little biased, but I feel like Willow's story is worth the price of entry alone. School of Movies draws its life from Patreon, and our top-tier sponsors get a howl of appreciation from us every episode. So thank you to... Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Barnicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And of course, all you folks on our Patreon at the $5 level and up get to hear what we thought of Marvel's Werewolf by Night, our upcoming trilogy on The Howling, Halloween Ends, Blonde, The Stepford Wives, and of course, the Limp Bizkit album from the year 2000, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water. So that's the Company of Wolves. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's, School's out! out. Woo! Yeah. <laughs>